Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the great doctrines of the Christian faith, using the Belgic Confession of Faith as our guide. This week we'll be considering the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And in that connection, I invite you to turn with me to two passages from the Word of God, both from the Gospel of John. The first is John 14, the verses 15 to 18. Hear the Word of God. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. The second passage is from John 16, the first 15 verses. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment." of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, we come in our study of the great doctrines of Scripture to the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit. This doctrine is summarized for us in Article 11 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. Now, this article is the last article on the doctrine of the Trinity. We began our examination of this doctrine back in Article 8. And there we saw that God is one in essence, yet distinguished in three persons. In other words, he is a triune God. He is three persons in one God. In Article 9, we were given some proofs for this doctrine, and in Article 10, we examined the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, now, as mentioned in Article 11, we consider the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this article of our confession is not very exhaustive. It's not concerned with the work of the Holy Spirit, only with his person, specifically his divine nature. Now, why that's the case is not clear. It may be because throughout the centuries, there was no controversy concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. But there was controversy concerning the person of the Holy Spirit especially between the churches in the East, the so-called Orthodox churches, and the churches in the West, namely the Roman Catholic Church, in particular regarding his procession, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. It seems likely then that Guider de Bray, the author of this confession, included an article on this subject precisely so that he could distinguish the teachings of the Protestant churches from that of the Eastern Orthodox churches while at the same time affirming that it stands in the line of the Western churches on this issue. Well, that said, on what basis do we believe that the Holy Spirit is fully divine? That's what we hope to consider in our sermon today. So my theme is the deity of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see how this is asserted by the church and it is secondly applied to the church. Throughout the ages, there has been much controversy concerning the Holy Spirit. The first controversy has to do with his person. There have been some, and they're still around today, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who say that the Holy Spirit is not a person at all, but rather an impersonal force or energy. Others say he is merely a positive influence or a gracious gift of God. Now, over and against this, we say, no, the Holy Spirit is a person. In fact, we confess in Article 11 that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. And by that, we do not mean, of course, that the Holy Spirit is a human being like you and me, not in that sense of personhood, but that he is a distinct, intelligent being within the Godhead. Now, that's clearly what the Scriptures teach. For example, the scriptures use masculine nouns and pronouns to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always referred to as a he rather than an it. For example, in John 16, verse 14, Jesus, referring to the Holy Spirit, says, and I quote, He, not it, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Furthermore, in John 14, verse 26, and in chapter 15, verse 26, And again, in chapter 16, verse 7, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Comforter, which in Greek is a masculine singular noun. So the Holy Spirit is not simply comfort, but rather the Comfortor. Secondly, the Scriptures ascribe to the Holy Spirit personal characteristics and attributes. For example, the Holy Spirit is described as having intelligence, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, he is said to know the deep things of God. He's also described as having a will. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, he is said to dispense gifts to believers as he wills. He's also said to have affections. The scriptures teach that the spirit can be grieved. What is more, he performs acts which are properly performed by a person. He moves, he searches, he speaks, he strives, he reproves, he even raises from the dead. The Holy Spirit could do none of these things if he was merely an impersonal force or energy. 
Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is represented in the Scriptures as having a distinct identity in relation to the other persons of the Trinity. For example, he's distinguished from the apostles. In Acts 15, verse 28, we read, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. He's also distinguished from the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 16, verse 14, Jesus says, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He's also distinguished from the Father and the Son. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Fourthly, there are also passages in which the Holy Spirit is distinguished from his own power. In Luke 1, verse 35, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, These words, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Now this verse, and many others like it, would make no sense if the Holy Spirit were merely a power. Just try substituting the word power for Holy Spirit, and you'll see how absurd it is to maintain that position. And so we conclude... The Spirit of God is a person. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. But he's more than just a person. He is a divine person. He is co-equal, co-essential, and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Now again, there have been those who have denied this. For example, way back in the early part of the history of the church, there was a man by the name of Arius. I mentioned his name last week in connection with the doctrine of the deity of Christ, and Arius insisted that like the Son, the Holy Spirit is a created being and is therefore not God. Now over and against that, the church says no and has always said no. The Holy Spirit is not a created being, but he is holy and completely divine. Now that's the central issue here in this article. On what scriptural grounds do we accept the deity of the Holy Spirit? Well, this doctrine rests on four scriptural grounds. The first is this, the scriptures give to the Holy Spirit divine names. So, for example, the Holy Spirit is called in scripture God. He's called the Spirit of God and sometimes even God himself. A second ground is this, the scriptures ascribe to the Holy Spirit divine attributes. So the Holy Spirit is said in scripture to be omnipresent. He is said to be omniscient, omnipotent, and eternal. Some of those words aren't always used in connection with the Holy Spirit, those exact words, but the doctrine certainly is there. The third ground for teaching that the, script, that the Holy Spirit is, is divine is that the Scriptures describe him as performing divine works. So the Spirit is described in the Bible as creating, as renovating, regenerating, renewing, raising the dead, and bestowing spiritual gifts. And the fourth ground is that the Scriptures render to him divine honor. So he's mentioned alongside the Father and the Son in the formula for baptism when Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He's also mentioned alongside the Father and the Son in the apostolic benediction of 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14, where Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. So clearly, the Holy Spirit is fully and completely divine. He is co-equal, 
co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Son. So the first controversy has to do with his person. The second controversy about the Holy Spirit has to do with his procession. Now, here we're concerned with the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the first and second persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. Just as the Son is said to be generated by the Father, so the Holy Spirit is said to proceed from the Father and the Son. Now, that's also the language of our confession. And I quote, We believe and confess also that the Holy Ghost from eternity proceeds from the Father and Son, and therefore is neither made, created, nor begotten, but only proceeds from both. End quote. Now, this matter of the procession of the Holy Spirit has been the subject of much controversy throughout the ages. During the first few centuries A.D., there was a major debate between the churches of the Western or the Roman Empire and the churches of the Eastern or the Byzantine Empire. The controversy had to do with this very point, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father only or from the Father and the Son. The churches in the East insisted he proceeded only from the Father, whereas the churches in the West insisted he proceeded from the Father and the Son. Well, eventually, at the Council of Toledo in 589 AD, the churches of the Western Empire, without consulting the churches of the Eastern Empire, amended the Nicene Creed to read that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we call that clause the Filioque Clause, which is Latin for and the Son. And that insertion of that clause created such a rift between the churches that it led eventually to a schism in 1054 AD. In that year, the churches in the East split from the churches in the West. The churches in the East called themselves the Orthodox Church, under its head, the Bishop of Constantinople, and the churches in the West called themselves the Roman Catholic Church, under its head, the Bishop of Rome, today known as the Pope. And that division remains to this very day. Now, our confession clearly sides with the Western Church in this debate. And why does it side with the Western Church? Why do we confess that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? Well, for the simple reason that this is what we believe the Scriptures teach. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now you notice that although the Spirit is said here to proceed from the Father explicitly, it also says that he is sent by the Son, implying that he proceeds from both. Or we can think of Romans 8, verse 9. There Paul writes, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, again, notice that the Holy Spirit is said to be the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And so the implication is that he proceeds from both. One final verse, Galatians 4, verse 6. Paul writes, And because ye are sons, 
God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of God's Son. And if he's the Spirit of God's Son, then he also proceeds from God's Son. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's important because if you maintain that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, then you separate the work of the Holy Spirit from the work of the Son. And that should never be done. The work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit belong together. The Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and applies those things to the believer. And if you separate these two, you end up with mysticism which is exactly what has happened to the Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, this then is what the church asserts concerning the deity of the Holy Spirit. She asserts that he is a person, he is a divine person, and that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, how does this apply to us today? What's the practical relevance of this doctrine to us? That brings me to my second point. The deity of the Holy Spirit has tremendous practical relevance to the believer. In the first place, if the Holy Spirit is divine, then he is worthy to be worshipped, feared, praised, and adored. Now, some feel uncomfortable with that idea. They say that nowhere in the Scriptures does it explicitly say that the Holy Spirit should be worshipped, and therefore we should worship only the Father and the Son. But friends, that is to subordinate the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, and we must never do that. We must always remember that there are three persons in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are all co-equal. And as such, all three persons are worthy of the same honor. If we worship the Father and the Son, we may and must also worship the Holy Spirit. Secondly, if the Holy Spirit is divine, then that means we may pray to him. Now, normally our prayers should be addressed to God the Father, and the Lord himself also taught us that in the Lord's Prayer. But there is a place for addressing specific petitions to the Holy Spirit. The Bible does that too. In Ezekiel 37, verse 9, in the vision of the valley of dry bones, the prophet Ezekiel is commanded by the Lord to prophesy to the wind. And the wind here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this is what he was to say, and I quote, Come from the four winds, O breath. And breathe upon these slain that they may live. Now notice that's in the form of a prayer. Ezekiel here is beseeching the breath of God, who is the Holy Spirit, to breathe life into the dry bones scattered on the ground. Thirdly, if the Holy Spirit is divine, then since the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, we may have absolute confidence in their trustworthiness. We may believe what the scriptures teach. We may embrace and draw comfort from its promises. We may pay heed to its warnings. Whatever the scriptures say, we may believe and live out of, for they have their source in the Holy Spirit, who is, as we've seen, completely and perfectly divine. Fourthly, if the Holy Spirit is divine, we must be holy as befits his temples. Several times in his writings, the Apostle Paul calls believers the temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, normally when we think of a temple, we think of a building made of wood or stone. But Paul says that the temple of the Holy Spirit is the believer himself. So if you're a believer in Christ today, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and has made his home in you. And that means you must live like one. 
You must strive to put sin to death in your life, and you must pursue holiness with all of your might. You must live in such a way that the Holy Spirit would delight to live in you and with you. Fifthly, if the Holy Spirit is divine, then we must avoid those sins which displease the Holy Spirit. Specifically, we must not resist the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean, to resist the Holy Spirit? Well, it means to refuse to accept, much less believe, the claims of the gospel, despite overwhelming evidence that they are true. That's what Stephen accused his fellow Jews of doing. You may remember in Acts 7, verse 51, after outlining the whole plan of redemption from the time of Abraham to the present, Stephen said to the Jews these words, he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do you. The Jews refused to accept that Jesus was the Christ. They refused to bow down to him and acknowledge him as the Messiah, despite the overwhelming evidence that he was. And in so doing, they steadfastly resisted the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now maybe somebody says, well, do we not believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is irresistible? Yes, we do. But only his saving work, his general work, is not irresistible. The point is, we must not resist the Holy Spirit, even in his general work. And those who do run the risk of endangering their own souls. Secondly, we must not quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, we do that when we don't live the way we should. When rather than putting sin to death, we embrace it and we allow it to control our thoughts and our words and our actions. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we easily give in to sin and to temptation when we do things we shouldn't do, when we go to places we shouldn't go to, when we listen to music we shouldn't listen to, when we're, when we're thinking thoughts that we shouldn't think and when we use words that we shouldn't use. In other words, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we walk in the paths of sin. And when we grieve him, we quench him, meaning we chase him away. Thirdly, we must not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's what the Pharisees did. After Jesus, by the Spirit, had cast out a demon out of the blind and dumb man, we read that the people were amazed, and they said, Is not this the son of David? And then we read further that when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Now what were the Pharisees doing here? They were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And this is called the sin against the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit is an extreme hardening of the heart against the work of God and the gospel of God, even attributing his work to the work of the devil. And Jesus says that sin is so great that it will not and cannot be forgiven. Now, why can that sin never be forgiven? Well, it's not because God is unwilling, much less unable to forgive it, but because anyone who has committed this sin has become so wicked, so depraved, and so perverse that he is unwilling to ask for and even receive forgiveness for it. Now, here we have a good test to determine if we have committed this sin or not. Sometimes sincere people of God can lead themselves into believing that they have committed this sin, and that worries them, it concerns them, and rightly so. But listen, those who are guilty of committing this sin are not worried or concerned about it. Their heart is so hardened that they couldn't care less. And therefore, whoever fears that he has committed the sin has most certainly not committed it. The point is, the deity of the Holy Spirit has tremendous practical value and application for our lives. My friends, do you see that today? 
by far the most important thing the Holy Spirit teaches us is to place our trust in Christ and in Christ alone. That is the Spirit's chief desire, to see sinners everywhere believe on the Lord Jesus and to submit to his rule and to live for his glory. My friends, have, have you done that? Have you believed on this Savior? Are you also living for him? Oh, may God give us grace to do so. Then he shall be glorified together with the Father and the Son, the one only true and triune God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. Dear friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. And Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N. Or you can email us directly at banneroftruth at frcna.org. For those who take the time to write, I will gladly send you a free copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith so that you can more easily follow along as I explain each of its 37 articles. If you would like to listen to the message you have just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio, all one word, dot com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, that's spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can visit the donation section of our webpage. Again, our webpage is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.